Tim and Cindy. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm just kidding. One more time. No. No, I'm, no, I'm so sorry. No, just, just, you say just you. <laughs> if you would stand soon, and we could all acknowledge your presence. And <laughs> Let's jump into the scriptures today. Matthew 7. So we've been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount for um, all of this year. And today we get to two verses, the shortest teaching we've had since, uh, since we started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. And today I want to read the text again. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I want to tell a story, the formative story of the Old Testament, God's salvation of the Israelites as we begin to understand this text and what Jesus is getting after. You see, when God saves the Israelites from being enslaved in Egypt, we often read this story and we get excited about certain parts of it. We get excited about Moses' historic line, let my people go. Or share about God's revealing himself on judgment through the ten plagues. Or maybe we focus on the manna and the quail coming down from heaven, God's provision for the Israelites in the wilderness. While these are all important parts of the story, what we want to see today is the implications of people being formed under the yoke of slavery. The implications of the Israelites who have lived not in their own land, but they've lived in Egypt, enslaved under the rule of Pharaoh for 400 years. Imagine for a second, close your eyes if you want, a life where you live in the ancient Near East and you're a part of Israel culture. You have this oral culture, this oral history that is rich and deep. You know the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You know the story of how your people ended up in Egypt through Joseph and his brothers and God's favor upon Joseph. You know the promises that God has made to your people to give them a land and a nation, yet day after day after day you make brick for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh. And not just you, sometimes our individualist mindset forgets that. It's not just you, it's you and it's your spouse. Your spouse and your kids, your uncles, your aunts, your cousins. Nearly everyone you know makes brick. Some of the Jewish people you know are promoted to sit over the top of other Jews and that's almost worse, not better. And after this cycle of your whole life, making bricks. You've accepted the reality that this is your life. This is your normal experience. Your experience has conditioned your expectations about day after day after day. And then one day you hear a story of a guy named Moses, who's an Israelite by blood. And he is telling people that God has sent him to bring freedom to your people. And you get excited, but instead of freedom coming, things actually get harder. The Egyptians crack down a bit. The opposite happens. Things become more difficult for you, not less. Egypt buckles down and doubles your workload. And not only that, but punishment increases now if you don't meet your unmeetable quota. You regret that Moses showed up on the scene 
You regret that he opened his mouth because things actually used to be easy in hindsight. You used to be comfortable and maybe almost even content with your circumstances of being a brickmaker for Egypt. You used to be uh, you used to be okay with your lot now that it's gotten harder. At least looking backward, it seems that way. And some weird things go down in Egypt, the plagues. And a couple weeks later, you and all your friends and all your family, you're fleeing from the city that you've lived in for so long. You actually get to take all of the Egyptian stuff with you, not because you robbed them, but through God's provision, you plunder the Egyptians by asking for their nice things and they give them to you. This miracle happens, and it's not even you that that get to see it. Like, you don't see it from a distance. You're a part of the miracle. You're a part of the story. You're a part of history that people like you and me will read about for the rest of time. You are living the story of feeling that those who enslaved you with their things uh, or who enslaved you and, and oppressed you, like, you get to be free because of God's provision and his promises being fulfilled to a people. And then you're leaving, and the Egyptians, they change their mind. They're not okay with it anymore. They come after you. God parts the waters, performs a miracle so that the Israelites can pass through, and they make it through, and then the Egyptians follow, and the waters crash in. And they're drowned in the waters. Another miracle, another picture of deliverance from the hand of your captors. But then you're stuck out in the desert and you're hungry. After all these miracles and all these beautiful stories, you'd think like your hearts would be filled with hope and belief, but hunger hits. They're probably hangry at this point. And people start to wonder if they really had it so bad back in Egypt. They wonder why God would bring them all the way out here to die. They wonder if this really was deliverance or just some sort of disaster and other death sentence. And while I would suggest that their grumbling at its root is an issue of the heart, what I would confidently say is that these people, these Israelites who have spent every single day of their lives enslaved to the Egyptians, that their heart and their bodies and their minds have been formed into something through their experience rather than through their circumstances um, formed by God. So these Egyptians have been formed by being enslaved, and although God is performing like miracle and deliverance, that is not what has formed them their whole lives. They're experiencing a new story, but the old story lives deep inside of them. The long formation over generations of the Israelite story is not simply undone because they have a new circumstance. Or as the saying goes, it took one day for Israelites to leave Egypt, but it took 40 years for Egypt to leave the Israelites. Jesus' words about the narrow gate and the wide gate speak to the formation of a life more than they speak to anything else. I'm going to read our text again. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. 
You see, the Israelites in their story have been placed on the narrow path, but it takes time for them to choose to walk through the gate that leads to life. And in that same sort of way as the Israelites, whether you consciously understand it or not, your whole life you have been being formed into something. You are still being formed into something. Jesus is not speaking about walking on the narrow gate and going, or not narrow path and going to heaven, or walking on the wide path and going to hell. Jesus is talking about things that lead to life now. The, ser- the context of the Sermon on the Mount is about human flourishing now. It's about finding life in Jesus now. Jesus, this whole time, has been presenting a picture of life that is like a better way to be human, a picture of what the kingdom really looks like manifest here on earth with us, like in Bakersfield, the place in which we live, the home that that we like are a part of the family, the church family that we're a part of. Jesus' vision through the Sermon on the Mount is about human flourishing today. And not even, sometimes I think we think the Sermon on the Mount is like this list of things to do. And I really don't think it is. I think the Sermon on the Mount is more of things we learn to naturally do as we abide with Jesus. When Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, we must be clear that Jesus does not say, like, let me carry you through the narrow gate. Or let my life, death, and resurrection do away with the gate or the path. Which is one of the reasons I don't think this text is getting after salvation, but formation. Jesus literally says there is a gate you should go through and a path you should walk. And this path is not wide and there are not many people on it. But on this path is where you really find life. See, this entering through the great gate is an activity. It's a movement toward something. It's a formation in a new type of life. I tell the story of Israel because like them, we have been formed to think a certain way too. Through our family of origin, our experiences, our teachers and coaches, our grandparents, jobs and schools, successes and failures, hurts and heartbreaks, pains and passions, they have all formed us to think about the world and who we are in it in some sort of way. We have become who we are because of those things. Not just because of the things we cognitively believe to be true, but because of the path we take with our minds and hearts and bodies. You see, Jesus is not calling you just to believe the right things. Jesus is calling you to live a life modeled after him that leads to life and flourishing. We see this as we look just before this verse into last week's teaching that we ask, seek, and knock toward our Father, not because our asking and seeking and knocking accomplishes something on its own, but because of his character, because of God's character and who he is. That that's the reason we treat others as we want to be treated, not because of our own moral superiority, but because of the intimacy and access and character we have with our Father in heaven because our lives flow from a place 
of intimacy with God. That's the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount, that your life would flow from a place of intimacy with God. It's the reason we so often, when we have like good and honorable desires for our lives, but they so rarely manifest into reality. I think like deep down, we all want to flourish, but so rarely does that actually become the life that we live. Because sometimes it feels like us trying harder at a thing or anything for that matter for some period of time just doesn't bring change in our lives. It's the reason three months from now, we're all gonna make New Year's resolutions that last like three weeks. Us being determined to love our enemies from earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, when we hear a teaching about it, we're like encouraged by the scriptures for like a week until the next week's teaching. And then we don't think about loving our enemies anymore. Especially if they like make me mad again. And that teaching, while it's from a long time ago, like we haven't given it much thought since then. And that's not like a knock That's a reality. This is a complexity of being human and following Jesus. It's the belief and understanding that willpower is actually not enough to change us into different types of people. There's a scripture that's often quoted, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Many of you probably know it by heart. Let me fix that. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Is that true? The new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And yes, that's that's true. But there's also an issue that I take with this reality, or an issue that I take when we throw this verse around flippantly at all sorts of things. I remember when I first started following Jesus. I was 15 years old. And I remember like going to church and confessing like sin and struggle to my mentors and my pastor. And and I remember there would be people who would quote this verse at me. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But that didn't make like my sin go away. That didn't make the like things that I struggled with cease just because I really truly believed that I was a new creation in Christ Jesus, which I do. I do believe that. I do believe that's true, but that doesn't make my, like, the things, that the, the baggage that I brought with me into being a new creation, it doesn't make the baggage cease. It doesn't make it less real. You see, I think this statement is true about who I am in Christ, but it's also not quite true yet. It's who Christ intends for me to be and who by the power of the Spirit I will become, but that takes work and effort and practice and empowerment by the Spirit over the course of a lifetime. One of the unique realities about following Jesus is like in a culture that like, if my YouTube video doesn't load in 10 seconds, I click onto something else. And here we are going like, oh, over the course of a lifetime, I'm gonna learn to follow Jesus more. And we're just not wired for that anymore. We're just not wired for slow, long, faithful obedience and transformation. Because much like the Israelites, we do not believe after 400 years or 40 years 
being enslaved day in and day out, that everything magically just like changes in our world. We encounter God and his love and we see him face to face and we start to follow him, but we follow him with all of the dysfunction that we dragged into the story from our family of origin or our previous relationships, our wounds and our pains, or what psychologists would call like our mental maps or our maps of meaning, the way we think about and view the world. Those don't automatically become new when we begin to follow Jesus. We have to like be reparented by the spirit and by Jesus and by the scriptures to be formed into people who actually flourish. And while I believe that as we fall more in love with Jesus, as our affections grow toward Christ, they do not just stay as affections, but they manifest themselves in an actual following or like actual relationship in, that manifests itself in our day-to-day -day lives. I would suggest that being a new creation in Christ Jesus is true about who you are positionally in the person of Jesus. You are 100% spiritually a new creation, what the Bible calls regenerate or born again, but we are all on a journey toward becoming who Christ says that we are. In the church, we call this sanctification toward holiness, or in more simple terms like maturing in your identity, in your actual physical life, inside and out as you follow Jesus. What Jesus is talking about here is what he has been getting after in the Sermon on the Mount the entire time. He is not talking about you behaving really superior to the person you sit next to at work. The Sermon on the Mount is not like a new list of 10 commandments that we just like try our hardest not to break. Jesus is talking about your heart. He's talking about your love. He's talking about your affections and how those manifest in the world. James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit says this, Jesus is a teacher who does not just inform your intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. And so Jesus, as we move toward the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, as we move that direction, Jesus has presented a picture of a different way to be human. Knowing that like our stories that we live into of how to be human contrast with his ways to be human. He knows that. And then he reads, or he says this line, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. And I think as I've just been praying and considering this morning, what, what Jesus wants to stir in our hearts as River and Way this morning is like he wants to stir our affections for him again. He wants to stir our love for him again. So often, like many of us, and it's just the reality of the people in this room, many of us have like chosen to follow Jesus with our lives. 
But often when we're on that path toward life, the like little things, the snags and the bushes and the thorns along the way snag us in a way that causes us to like lose distraction on focusing on the person of Jesus. And we think like, man, as long as I'm on the road, it doesn't matter what happens or where I'm going, I'm on the right road. And I think Jesus has a way of life for us that's actually very, like very much different and more than that. He has a life that leads to flourishing. I just kept seeing this picture of any good, like any good Disney movie that comes to mind where there's a character that has to go on a journey and they come to this place and they've been told like, when you get here, go right. And to the right is the like hard and dark and thorny, like cavernous road. And on the left is this like sunny, delight, joyous road. And they come to this place. And even though they've been told like, this is the way you have to go. When they get there, they see these roads in front of them and go like, something just tells me I should go this way. And they do. And it always leads to like destruction or near death for whatever Disney character you chose. But I think often in that same sort of way, in this invitation to a long journey of following Jesus, sometimes in our life, even though we know we want the path that leads to life, the, like, the way it looks and the way it feels distracts us or keeps us from pursuing what we find there, which is Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. I was reminded this last week that like prayer isn't just a thing we do, but prayer is like everything. That like when, when we enter eternity with Christ, what we'll be doing is like talking with him day to day. And I think we forget that like as sons and daughters, we get to do that now. We taste heaven when we pray and sit with our Father. In Revelation 2, the letter to the church of Ephesus, John writes, You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things. Hear those words. Those aren't like believe the things. Repent and do the things you did at first. For most of us in the room, when we experienced God's love for us and said yes to following him, it was an act of that. It was an act of love. Not a ticket from the bad place or a manipulative experience, but it was God revealing himself to you, calling you, choosing you, washing you with love that drew you near to him and, and drew, like he drew on your affections and desires and your love for something that could actually like complete the missing piece inside your heart. And the appropriate response to God's love is that he have our love and our affection. And Jesus says, like, if you love me, obey my commands. If you love me, walk the narrow path toward life. I'm going to close by reading two sections of scripture. The first one is going to be a long section of John 15. And the second is just going to be our text from today. But I think as we see a picture of abiding in Christ, it helps us see this passage a little bit differently. 
It helps us see that like the road that leads to life is not a like lonely road. It's a road with Christ that, yes, looks different than all the other roads that lead to destruction. But it's a road that leads to life. John 15 says, I am the true vine, Jesus speaking. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do no thing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may become complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus, we thank you that you are the pathway to life, and that we don't walk alone with like ourselves on that path. We walk like hand in hand with you. We walk toward intimacy, like just kept picturing my little son Wesley just the last few days probably in his fatigue he just like keeps running around and coming up to Jackie and I and saying like hey mom I love you or I just wanted to give you a hug just as I was praying through this text this morning it's just the picture that kept coming to mind is that, that we're coming to a person we're coming to God we're coming to Christ who desires nothing more than to like wrap his arms around you and say, I just wanted to give you a hug. I just wanted to tell you that I loved you. And that 
we would experience life in intimacy, not and intimacy, that we would experience life in intimacy with Jesus, with our Father, with the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. As we sing to you now, Holy Spirit, come. Minister to our hearts. Call us to love again. If you would stand, um, and we're going to take, or we're going to get the elements of communion as Brandon strums, and then we're going to come back and take communion.